Salo for lover, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. They volunteered to go to the First World War. Lest we forget, as Anzac Day dawns soon, the Cook Islands community remember their fallen soldiers. Also, as precautions and for protocols, we've shut down all of the daycare centres. An American Samoa health expert warns of a possible measles outbreak following one confirmed case. And later on, short-term measures such as directed and targeted assistance for lower-income households could be improved. Fiji concludes its two-day National Economic Summit. Emotions are running high in the Cook Islands in anticipation of Anzac Day. Former member of the Cook Islands Parliament and the organiser of an Anzac reunion event, Tamaiva Tuovera, affectionately known as Captain Tama, has spoken about his time as a soldier. He spoke with Lydia Lewis while setting up the event, where a few hundred strong crowd is expected. There was just under 500 soldiers from the Cook Islands, from many of the islands around the Cook Islands, you know, like Atataki, Mangaia and all those places. They volunteered to go to the First World War, and apparently they were rejected. The, the British, or the Commonwealth, whatever, said, no, we don't want you fighting. But being warriors from over here, they were very determined to go. And so they thought of another way. Um, they started raising money to, for, the war, for uh, the war effort. And just one island alone, <coughs> they made enough money to su- uh, support every man, woman and child on that island. You know, they, they made, back in those days, you know, they, they made over £1,200, and that was a lot of money in them days. So, but eventually, uh, they were attached to the 28th Maori Battalion, and they fitted in quite well. You know, the languages are very similar. In a town in France called Arras, we got a photo here of three Cook Islanders. They dug tunnels under their city, and they carved their names in the, in the roof of the cave. That is now a museum. They, they dug 12 miles of tunnels under the city you know, just, just so people can escape or whatever and support the city. And we just had the mayor of Arras come over. He came here to the RSA and then we had lunch with him and then he's in Wellington now for Anzac Day. But uh, yeah, it was quite touching for him to be here and talking to the ancestors of the three soldiers that were involved in the uh, tunnel digging. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, in the Pacific, we had um, all these other Pacific islands also go to the First World War um, and join the 28th Māori Battalion and that, so it wasn't just the Cook Islanders. They called our people, um, I'll say our people, but they called our people here... Um, the Rarotongan contingent, even though it was not only from Rarotonga. I say it was about another six, seven islands that uh, the soldiers came from. And then World War II uh, came about. What was the support from the Cook Islands like then? Oh, very strong. Very strong. We, we got storyboards here that were made up of certain soldiers that were in the Second World War. And one of them is of uh, George Cutter. Now He... That, that's um, what do you call it? The, the chief 
of the of uh, the certain family over here. Now he, him, and his crew, uh, crew, they went and supported the British gunners in the Second World War, and they actually the British were quite amazed at the strength of these uh, these Cook Islanders loading shells into these big guns, and as if it was effortless, just put them in the guns, fire them, load them, load them. They they said thirty of these. Cook Islanders did the work of over a hundred British soldiers. That's impressive. It, it is very impressive. You know, it's um, yeah, it is. It makes you know, it makes a lot of these locals very proud. One guy came in the other day and said, "Oh God, that's a photo of my grandfather." You know, it was on one of the storyboards we had, so we showed him the big board. You know, that even that for him, that was very touching. American Samoa's epidemiologist expects there to be more cases of measles in the community. It follows an eight-year-old girl testing positive on Tuesday after visiting a community centre with symptoms on March 27th. Daycare and early childhood education centres have been shut since. Caleb Fotheringham speaks with Department of Health epidemiologist Scott Anissi about the case. The case was symptomatic in March. Basically, that activated our emergency response protocols. At the moment, we're targeting the daycare centers as well as all of those that are in early childhood education range. So as part of the response measures, we deployed our vaccination campaigns and our immunization campaigns out. We have a relatively high immunization rate, over 90%. So we are comfortable that the vaccination rate is high enough for us to maintain response. So at the moment, just as precautions and per protocols, we've shut down all of the daycare centers as well as the early childhood education, which is basically six years and below before the elementary school. And we've gone out into the community to deploy a lot of the immunization and vaccination campaigns targeting those that are without vaccinations right now. We've identified the kids in the community that need at least one dose. And we've deployed all of our resources out um, to make sure that we vaccinate those cases. And as per protocol, because we have been declaring that we are in a measles outbreak, we've lowered the first dose age to six months. As such, we now have a new population that we want to vaccinate, and those are the six months and above. And so that's where we're focusing our campaign at the moment. And normally the vaccination would would be one year one, one year old so the first shot would normally be given at one years old with the follow-up shot at four years of age and do you suspect there will be more cases than just the one detected uh, absolutely right now we've basically been out there and we've used our clinical definition and our clinical team to identify cases in the community based on symptoms as we're ramping up our testing the goal here is to increase samples on a weekly basis so that we can start to see and evaluate the presence of measles and how distributed it is or the magnitude of it in the community so we are expecting as we're testing as with anything you know the more you look the more you find so we are expecting because we're ramping of testing that we will be starting to see clusters and positive cases rolling in. Have people presented to the hospital with symptoms after this first one was detected? 
Yeah, so we have been doing our hospital and our health center-based surveillance as well as our community-based surveillance. Basically, what we've done now, though, is using the case definition, we've activated our 24-hour emergency command. And so what they do is parents call in with symptomatic children and then a field assessment team goes out there. That's to limit the exposure of those that are coming in regular to our health centers and our hospital. So right now, we're, we are seeing some cases that come in um, and they're more on the higher end of the spectrum of disease. So parents are more concerned of those cases. But what we want to also get is those that are mild cases, those that are cases that are at home. The current recommendation is if there is any child that is symptomatic, that they call the hotline, and then we have an assessment team that goes out, assesses the symptoms and uh, self-isolation at home, as well as take samples for our testing. Okay, and the case that did come back positive. Did she travel from anywhere or was was she just based in American Samoa the whole time? At the moment, we are still investigating whether this was travel associated or community spread. As the contact tracing teams come back with more information at this time, it is unclear whether that is a travel associated or a community spread case. But we are continuing the investigation in the community. And what's the feeling in the community at the moment? Are people pretty on edge or are people pretty calm? I think because they had a measles outbreak, you know, just a few years ago in 2019, and we're deploying the same protocols. Um, and, and then just coming out of COVID restrictions um, just within the last year. Or so I think people, they know what to expect. You know, they're pretty patient with us, which is great when you're doing community work. And I think now they're a lot used to the implementation of mask wearing and implementation of our basic protocols that they had in uh, COVID. So I, I think people are really receptive at the moment, just given the history of the outbreaks that we've been having. You said that the person was symptomatic in March, and I'm pretty sure this case only got detected Tuesday. So why was it so long? At the moment, we don't have local capacity to test for measles, and it gets sent off. Now, the batch that went off is part of routine testing. As routine testing is, is there's a lot of logistics that play a role, uh, mainly in uh, how many samples are sent and the variety of samples, because they're just not sent for measles testing as well. So one of the biggest issues is that we don't have local capacity, which is what part of the response priority is now, is to get and build up the laboratory capabilities so that we can provide local testing. The global pandemic, multiple severe tropical cyclones, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine have resulted in an economic crisis in Fiji. With debt reaching 90% of GDP last year, exacerbating the lower economic growth trends that were emerging before the pandemic. To address this crisis, the Fijian government and 500 representatives joined forces over a two-day workshop to help the government get out of a financial hole. Rachel Nath has been following the developments at the National Economic Summit, which took place after 16 years. The people have spoken, demanding an urgent need to address skyrocketed inflation levels. Hot on the heels of an intense two-day open dialogue, Minister of Finance Mr. Biman Prasad says economic growth is the answer for Fiji. Short-term measures such as directed and targeted assistance for lower-income households could be improved with increased government revenue created by a growing economy and increased economic growth. 
Mr. Prasad says 14 key resolutions have also been agreed upon and will help inform the government's short, medium and long-term policies and strategies. But what the country hopes to see surface from this summit is immediate ease to Fijian pockets, such as bringing down the cost of basic needs. Economist Mr. Nilesh Gounder says to see a change of sorts, government needs to relate to the people's challenges. Talking about a total review of the, of the cost of living index and the, how the cost of living basket uh, is, 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 is calculated because at the moment it seems there's, there's a mismatch between the cost of living, the inflation rate, and what actually consumers and households are feeling on the ground. So I think a review is now necessary for the cost of living uh, basket that is used to calculate the consumer price. But the government also needs money. So a big ticket item on the agenda was talking about increasing revenue and tax as a solution. At the moment, goods and services tax or VAT sits at 9% and suggestions floated to lift it up to 15% to try and restore the economy. Fiscal Review Committee Chair Richard Naidu proposed taxing basic items like flour and rice, which people currently pay no tax on. At 9%, FERCA tells us that's costing us $160 million a year. And of course, who benefits the most from that zero rate? It's mostly people in this room. We can afford more money. We can afford to buy more basic items, more flour, more rice, more, 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 more cooking oil than the poorest people. So we're getting the benefit of that. Mr. Naidu suggests targeting the lower income households and finding a way to deliver cash to them. Minister for Finance says a final decision will be made by the government. Now, the Prime Minister, Mr. Sidiveni Rambuka, extended a message of unity, told government and business leaders that reshaping the future means more than just promoting economic growth and development. The for our nation requires our communities to be united and to move away from divisions. We all know that those divisions have not worked any good for us. We know what those divisions have done to our nation and to us as people. Let us be reminded that we can all work together to seek solutions to challenges and maintain our different political viewpoints. A New Zealand-based financial expert told the Fiji Sun that the summit is a failure as it cannot produce meaningful outcomes, stating that government should have pre-existing strategies and visions for the country and not rely on summits. The experts suggest earning more public sector income from other sources and maintaining a smaller government with better management of public resources to improve economic outcomes. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rndi.com slash programs, or you can download us on Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. From myself and the brilliant team here at RNZ Pacific, till fast way forward.